Hi there, and welcome to the Organic Stream podcast. I'm your host, Aline Murphy, and we're back, bringing you a special two-parter episode. The topic? Agriculture and soils in the COP21 climate talks. There's a lot to cover, so let's jump in. We all know that the soils feed and sustain us. They nourish us. And in these times of extreme drought and extreme flooding, more than ever, we know we need to be nourishing the soil. What takes up nearly half the world's land and makes up one third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions? Food and agriculture. Yet food and agriculture have almost always been sidelined in the Conference of Parties climate change meetings, or COP for short. Things like energy and transport always get more attention, up until last year. So what changed? This was the first year that each country had to submit a plan detailing what they intended to do to cut down on emissions before the event, in order to speed up the talks and get to an agreement. And one look at these plans, or intended nationally determined contributions as they're called, would tell you that while international priorities have always been on other areas, the vast majority of individual countries consider agriculture and food to be some of the most important factors involved. Over 80% had strategies to mitigate the impacts of agriculture on climate change, and 60% had strategies for adapting agriculture to climate change. How we manage our soils, our food and agricultural systems, and the natural organic cycle plays a key role in our planet's survival. This idea has slowly been taking root in countries all over the world during the last few decades, thanks to those who campaigned hard to get these issues heard. Last year, during the International Year of Soils, all this came to a head, and combined with the intended Nationally Determined Contributions, INDCs, this meant that agriculture, food and soil health, and even carbon soil sequestration finally got a moment in the spotlight. In this two-parter episode, we'll be exploring just how all this attention was translated into action, the dangers of language and how that can lead to greenwashing and bad policy, the challenges in measuring results with soil carbon sequestration, and how far the Paris Agreement goes in supporting soil and agricultural actions. Throughout this episode as well, we'll be sharing highlights from the speakers of a side event that we took part in during COP21 last year, the International Compost Roundtable, Zero Waste and Agroecology Solutions for Climate Change. This event touched on many of these topics and the insights shared by the speakers are worth discussing. And before we delve in, I'd like to mention a few events that are on our radar. The first is an event we're once again partnering with this year, Ecomondo 2016. Ecomondo showcases advanced and sustainable technology for recycling and processing all kinds of materials, and it's the largest event of its kind in the Euro-Mediterranean area. This year sees the circular economy in focus once again, across all sectors of the conference, 
from exploring the state of environmental product certification and sustainable wastewater management to building a circular bioeconomy as well as an urban circular economy. The conference takes place this year between the 8th and the 11th of November in Rimini, Italy. If you're interested in attending, please go to www.ecomondo.com for more information and to register. And the second event is the Disruptive Innovation Festival, or DIF 2016, on November 7th to the 25th. This is an online open access event and also includes face-to-face -face events as well, inviting thought leaders, entrepreneurs, innovators, businesses, makers and learners to explore the question, the economy is changing, what do I need to know, experience and do? DIF 2016 kicks off with a grand opening on November 7th in London and spaces are limited, so if you're interested, register at www.thinkdif.com forward slash about. And links to both events are on our podcast episode page. And now, let's go. So COP21 culminated in the Paris Agreement, which is now being ratified around the world. And so before we jump into all the particulars, let's start by taking a look at this Paris Agreement itself. So despite 80% of INDCs including agriculture in their plans, agriculture is not mentioned in the Paris Agreement text at all. Why was it left out? Teresa Anderson from Action Aid spoke at the Compost Roundtable last year and gave us a glimpse into what was happening during the negotiations. And perhaps here we can see some of the reasoning behind this lack of mention. I think a lot of people have heard uh, sort of in this space or perhaps even outside the UNFCCC and sometimes inside the COP process, why isn't agriculture in the negotiations? It should be, it should be, this is about food security. I just want to flag that the UN negotiations are so complex that they're practically perverse. You need to treat agriculture really, really carefully in this crazy space because otherwise if you don't do it right, you could get the exact opposite thing of what you intended to do. So I just want to make clear that we're all on the same page. We all really, really believe in agroecology, in composting, um, in environmental integrity, on the rights of farmers and everything. On all of these principles, we are absolutely in line. But I've been following climate and agriculture negotiations for many years now. Let me tell you, <laughs> you cannot go in a straight line to where you want to go in these talks. So if we don't get this right, it could end up causing more damage than good. This goes some way to explaining why the Paris Agreement does not mention agriculture specifically. But what is mentioned in the text? Supporting ecosystems and biodiversity and the importance of protecting food production while reducing emissions is mentioned in the text. And in the non-binding preamble of the Paris Agreement, there is a reference to safeguarding food security, ending hunger and safeguarding against the vulnerabilities of food production systems to climate change impacts. So all of these things do relate to agriculture and are in themselves a huge step forward. In the binding part of the text, it says that climate resilience and lowering emissions should be done in a manner that does not threaten food production. This is important too. 
There has always been some fears that including agriculture in climate change negotiations could result in emission reduction strategies that threaten the ability to produce enough food, something that relates back to Theresa's point. So the good news about the agreement is agriculture's inclusion in so many INDCs means it will be a priority. And the other factor is the commitment to a 1.5 degree target in the agreement. To get anywhere close to that target, we will need some serious mitigation in the agricultural sector. But the bad news and the biggest barrier is in financing. According to CCAF's study on national climate plans, the 48 least industrialised countries will need funding of 5 billion US dollars per year to reach their goals. That's three billion US dollars for adaptation and two billion dollars for reducing farm emissions. This is way higher than current commitments to climate funds for agriculture, and many are looking for agriculture to be a key sector in climate financing for this reason. Now we've linked to the CCAF study in the resources section on our podcast page, so check it out if you're interested. And what about INDCs? How far do they go? I won't spend long discussing the ins and outs, but a few concerns need to be mentioned. First, the Rainforest Alliance published an assessment of INDCs that found many INDCs not only lacked ambition in reducing carbon emissions from the land sector, but did not give any detail in how to achieve their goals. So clearly more work needs to be done in figuring out what strategies to use, how best to use them, and what they will achieve. It's also been highlighted by some groups, like the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, that some INDCs promote efforts that are not actually very green, like promoting incineration of organics, so-called waste to energy, rather than recycling them. This is a clear example of doing more harm than good, and it's something we're familiar with. The problem is that sometimes policymaking behaves in a particularly unfair way towards the soils and particularly towards soil organic matter. In a nutshell, we have subsidies in many corners of the world to incinerate bio-waste and there is no subsidy to use compost. I'm sure you recognise that voice. That was Enzo Favuino, researcher and advisor of the Scuola Agraria del Parco di Monza in Italy and chair of the scientific committee at Zero Waste Europe. And he was at the Compost Roundtable highlighting our current struggle with bad policy. And it's these kinds of things that we need to watch out for as countries move to implement their nationally determined contributions. So as we move forward on climate actions, challenging bad policy... Bad ideas and assumptions is something we need to do a lot of. Let's take a look, for example, at the most popular future mitigation technology that would suck down carbon dioxide, bioenergy carbon capture and storage, or BECS for short. BECS aims to draw down carbon from the atmosphere using trees and crops, and then use this biomass as energy. There are other types of carbon dioxide removal technologies as well, but this one became a sort of saviour during COP21, being seen as one of the most viable options. Now, BECS is included in most of the modelled pathways by climate scientists as a way to keep us under the two degrees of global warming since the pre-industrial era. And why this may sound like a great idea? 
There are dangers in how land is being considered for this technology and in the language that was being used during the talks. Here's Teresa again. Land is not only for mitigation. As we all know, land is about food security, it's about livelihoods, it's about biodiversity, culture, a million other things. And we need to be really careful that, in, especially in these climate negotiations, land is very much being treated as the only thing it's there for is mitigation. And we really have to push back as strongly as possible. I mean, it's really hard in this space at the moment to fight for the words food security to be recognised as a reason for the UNFCCC for even existing. You know, And we have to be really careful about how we treat it. So one of the things that we're trying to do in the negotiations is to really push back against um, efforts to treat assumptions that land is going to be available on a large scale for mitigation um, because there's a particular threat from language of climate neutrality or net zero that's currently in the um, text. Well, net zero dropped out yesterday, but climate neutrality is still there in the text for the long-term goal. It sounds ambitious, right? Net zero climate neutral, great. But what it actually can mean is that you can continue emissions, but you need some kind of technology to suck that carbon down. And the only technology we really have on a large scale is uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which is large scale biofuels or tree plantations, which you burn, capture that carbon and use carbon capture and storage. But then some scenarios say that we can keep to under two degrees using BECs, but we'd have to use between 500 million and you know several billion hectares of land in order to do that. And to put that into context, globally, 1.5 billion hectares of land are put towards crop production. So we're talking about displacing, basically, crop production, or perhaps finding another Africa somewhere, which is 3 billion hectares of land. So here we get to a key issue during the climate negotiations, the use of land and assumptions that land will be available on a large scale for mitigation. It's clear to see how using BECs could lead to big problems in many areas, but specifically in terms of displacing land used for food production, this is a great example of why the inclusion of food security in the Paris Agreement was so important. So yes, we have to be careful about how we frame things and the assumptions we have. We'll come back to this topic in the next episode because there's a lot more to say. We take a short break now to thank Biobin for making this episode possible. Biobin is a mobile, on-site, organic and wet material management solution that starts the composting process and effectively manages odour from putricible waste. It can be used in a variety of outlets, including food manufacturing, restaurants, shopping centres, supermarkets and much more. Wherever organics or wet materials are generated, Biobin is the solution. And now, back to the show. Moving on to strategies we know that work, like using compost, there are other challenges we face. One big one is in accurately measuring the benefits and convincing policymakers of those benefits. It's not always easy. I'll let Enzo explain. When considering the benefits of using compost, you know, There is one bit of the benefits which is easy to calculate, which is the nutrient value, replacement of the mineral fertilizers. 
And this is normally accounted for in the life cycle analysis. But then there is another important effect, which is storing carbon in soils. And this is important per se, because with more carbon in soil, we will have less carbon in the atmosphere to cause climate change. But also for the further effects it causes. More organic matter implies improved workability of soils, so less energetic input to the primary sector and therefore less greenhouse gases, better water retention, less energy for irrigation, and so on and so forth. So try to discuss this with a life cycle analyst. And they say, yeah, we agree that such effects are there, but they are crop-specific, soil-specific, weather-specific, slope-specific, and so on and so forth. And so they say, they are not accountable for So our reply should be, okay, sir, I agree with you. They cannot be calculated sharply, but they are important anyway. Because the order of magnitude of such effects is so big that once you consider the uncertainties in the models, the difference between the lowest number you come up with and the highest number you come up with, once you multiply it times the arable land area, it gives you a total amount of carbon in soils, which is five times greater than the total reduction target of carbon dioxide for Europe during the first commitment period. It's incredibly important. And in the end of the story, we don't have to improve the world in a model. We have to improve the world in the real life. So even though we can't calculate it, we have to consider that in policy making. We have to improve the world in real life, not a model. This is an incredibly important message for us to keep in mind, I think, especially when it comes to climate discussions. And especially when talking about strategies for soil carbon sequestration and mitigation in agriculture. And that's what I want to focus on in this last part of the episode, because a lot has been happening here. Just how much CO2 from the atmosphere can actually be sequestered into our soils is something that's still being debated today. It is hard to calculate. But even so, as Enzo described, increasing carbon in soils using methods like compost has so many benefits that are not always properly accounted for. There's a strong case for including them in climate change policy. So while we don't have a system set up to accurately measure all the hard to account for effects of soil carbon sequestration strategies, we're still not waiting around. Soil continues to lose carbon, farmers continue to struggle, agriculture continues to emit large amounts of greenhouse gases. And in response, action around sustainable agriculture and restoring soils is growing. So this is my first slide, and it really says everything that I'm going to say, which is that the cows already know what the scientists took us several years to tell. One of the guests at the compost roundtable was Kala Rose Ostrander, a climate change advisor who discussed the work of the Marin Carbon Project. The Marin Carbon Project, based in California, works with carbon sequestration in rangelands and agricultural soils through research and development of scalable, repeatable carbon farming techniques. They've been conducting many studies with compost, and I'm sure a lot of you are aware of their work. And Kala shared some of the data of their rangeland studies at the compost roundtable. 
So just really quickly, what did the Marin Carbon Project do? They spread a half an inch of organic-based compost on rangelands, okay? CN ratio 11 to 1. So this is a picture of the Marin Carbon Project ranch where we applied compost and tested it side-by-side with different plots where we also tested compost tea, the key line plow, and grazing alone. And what you can see is that the cows self-selected for the plots that had compost applied. Important to note here that their control plots were losing carbon, while the ones with compost were gaining carbon. And Calla mentioned that at the moment, grasslands worldwide are losing carbon and are themselves a source of carbon emissions. This is four years of data. We now have seven years of data. From that one time of half inch of compost application, there was a carbon gain. This is net carbon. This is not the carbon that came from the compost itself. This is not carbon in the labile pool, which is the pool of carbon that cycles very rapidly. This is durable carbon. This carbon will be here for 30 to hundreds of years. This is a net carbon gain. It's about, on average, 1.5 tons per hectare of carbon. Incredible stuff. And it gets more interesting when she explains their model scenario showing the carbon response in the soil. According to their model, the soil continues to gain carbon for 30 years and then slowly peters out over the course of 100 years. So from that one application of half an inch of compost, the soil will gain carbon every year Year for for 100 years. So a one-time addition has 100 years worth of consequences. That's a big deal when it comes to soil health and climate change. Research initiatives like this are incredibly valuable to us to understand what techniques work to improve soils and sequester carbon, and to demonstrate to policymakers the kinds of benefits this will bring us. If you're interested in more information on this project, check out the links on our episode page as well. You'll find many other resources there too. Aside from research projects like the one in Marin, More action has been taken to move ahead with carbon sequestration and soil restoration. Just before COP21, France launched an initiative called 4 per 1000 with a declaration signed by 40 countries, by international agencies, research organisations, farmers' organisations and NGOs. Now the name of the initiative is a reference to its main goal, to increase the amount of CO2 in soils by 4 grams per kilo of soil, enough to offset human emissions and to demonstrate that agriculture can play a crucial role in food security and climate change. During the talks, CGIAR announced it was also jumping on board the initiative and is working at the moment with governments in seven countries to sequester 25 megatons of carbon while improving farming yields by 20%. The claims of the initiative are bold, some of the techniques are experimental, and there's a long way to go, but it's great to see action being taken on this front to help build a better understanding of what works when it comes to soil carbon sequestration and mitigation. And while this initiative wasn't part of the official COP21 event, it's helped build on the progress made during the talks. And that's all we have time for in this episode. 
On the next episode, we'll get into this progress and what's been happening since Paris. We'll also be looking at how climate policy frameworks have to change and more words of caution from Teresa. So stay tuned. That was the Organic Stream podcast, episode 44. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, do share them with us. You can leave a comment on our website, organicstream.org, or send us a tweet. Our Twitter handle is theorgstream. That's all we have time for this week. Tune in again next time for more great stories. Thank you.